Brian McClanahan Show, episode 430. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. You get a free class when you do enroll at mcclanahanacademy.com. 10 Myths of American History, and you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. You can also go to brianmcclanahan.com, click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can get a book plate if you want my autograph of one of my books. I've got a lot of those, my most recent Southern Scribblings. You can also click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com, get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. All kinds of ways to support the show. Go to Learn True, T-R-U-E, LearnTrueHistory.com, my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. You can click on all those things, do all that stuff, and you can also share this podcast around on social media. Let people know you're listening to it. Rate it where you get your podcast. That's how it helps it move up, generates interest. Those kind of things are what we're going to do to help people get, think, get to thinking locally and acting locally. I mean, this is, this is the whole point of it. But it's also important to get people into first principles. And the last podcast I did, I focused on that with Richard Weaver, and a discussion of what libertarians and conservatives have in common in modern America. Now, this was 1960 that that was written. And he said some things there that we're still facing today 61 years later. Nothing has changed in 61 years. In fact, it's only gotten worse. And I want to do this again with a First Principles episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. And I'm going to go back to a book that was published in 1992. 1992. Now, remember when I got this book, uh, I was a graduate student. Now, the first time I read this, I was a graduate student. I didn't read it when it first came out. I read it when I was a graduate student, and I was assigned it by a left-leaning professor at the University of South Carolina. I remember when I looked at it, and I saw it, and I saw who it was dedicated to. Dedicated to Mel Bradford, John Shelton Reed, and Clyde Wilson. Scholars, gentlemen, worthy heirs of a great Southern tradition. Written by Eugene Genovese, The Slaveholder's Dilemma, Freedom and Progress in Southern Conservative Thought, 1820-1860. Now, this particular professor, I don't know if he assigns this book still, but he was interested in the real exchange of ideas he was a liberal in the truest sense of the word. He was a, a not a student of Eugene Genovese, but someone who certainly was influenced by Eugene Genovese and wrote a lot of books and a lot of material on slavery itself, which is what Genovese focused most of his career doing. But I want to read the introduction to this book. And I want to read this because... People ask me, you know, where did you come around to thinking the way that you do on some things, particularly with the Southern tradition? 
And I think this introduction, it's about eight pages, it's very short. I think this introduction is one that I could point to and I could say, well, this was, this was it. This particular essay, this introduction, because that's what this is, it's an essay, helped, re, helped orient my mind in certain ways as I started thinking about the Southern tradition. And of course, Genovese expanded on this and the mind of the master class, which he published right near the end of his life. Uh, he and his wife published it. She died shortly thereafter, and he not long after that. Genovese was a New Yorker. Genovese was not a Southerner by birth, but he loved the Southern tradition for all of its warts. Everything that he thought, the negative parts of it, but there was so much beauty and positivity towards it. And the problem with what we have today is if you say you admire the Southern tradition, well, how can you do that? That's a bunch of racist slaveholders. There's nothing valuable about that. You look at the neoconservatives, you look at Victor Davis Hanson, Mark Levin, all these people, Dinesh D'Souza, it doesn't matter who you are, whether they're a scholar or a pundit, Alan Gelzo, there's nothing valuable in the South. Nothing at all. There's nothing about it. Why? Because they're infected with the righteous cause myth. They're infected with this idea that nothing valuable can come out of the South. Even look at the most recent biography of John C. Calhoun by uh, Elder. I was shocked. I actually listened to a, an interview that he did with a former professor of his at, um, at Clemson. And the way they described Genovese was nothing of what Genovese actually is. Nothing of what Genovese actually said. It's like they had never read any of this stuff. They had never read The Slaveholder's Dilemma. They had never read The Mind of the Master Class, except to pull things out of it that they needed, but they never really read what Genovese actually said. Genovese's book, The Southern Tradition, is so good. It's a collection of essays. That one's excellent as well. But this essay, written in 1992, hammers the modern academy. And it hammers the modern academy for being anti-intellectual. Because if you're going to run around saying there's nothing valuable about John C. Calhoun, we have to reject Calhoun, but of course we can look at Calhoun. We have to reject him outright because he was a slave owner. Or you look it out and think, slaver, this slaver, that slaver, this slaveholder, that, that qualifier in front of a southerner, it, the the intent of that is to discredit everything they say. Genovese was appalled by this tactic because it's anti-intellectual. And this is what you get out of the academy, and then that filters into everything else in society. If you just call them the slavers, the slave owners, the slaveholders, whatever it is, we don't put that qualifier in front of other people or throughout history. We don't say the slaver Aristotle or the slaver Julius Caesar. Do we do that? No. It's only done in America because it has a political weight behind it. It's loaded. Because that means this person is stupid. And that's what they're doing. This person is stupid. They're a non-person. They don't have anything valuable to say about anything. Zero. We don't put that pejorative, though, in front of John Hancock. We don't say the slaver John Hancock, which is what he was, or the slaver Sam Adams. We don't, we don't say that. 
We don't say the slave trader Benjamin Franklin. Why? Because those are good. Those are Northerners who, I mean, Franklin eventually, you know, he redeemed himself because he was anti-slavery. But we know Franklin dabbled in, in trading slaves. At least there's evidence of it. So do we put that in front of it? No. Do we put the slaver U.S. Grant, who's had slaves, and we put that in front of U.S. Grant? No, because he's a good guy. Or how about the slaver Abraham Lincoln, because his wife's family owned slaves? Do we put that in front of Lincoln? I mean, we don't do this. We only do it for certain people, and we only do it for certain people because we want to minimize what they had to say. And generally, we're trying to minimize, or the, the establishment is trying to minimize what they had to say that's conservative, that might be detrimental to their positions. And Genovese gets into that in this essay. So let me read this. He says, uh, These lectures were intended primarily as a contribution to intellectual history. The first question that might arise would therefore concern resonance. Did the intellectuals discussed here have much influence? Did they, as it were, speak for their people, in particular for the slaveholders? The answer to both these questions is yes. To defend the answer will require a leisurely book that closely examined the relation of Southern intellectual life to society and institutions and political concept context. I'm sorry. These lectures are a small slice of such a book, which Elizabeth Fox Genovese and I have been working on for the last 15 years or so and hope to have ready before too many more years go by. And that, of course, became the mind of the master class. If the claim of influence and resonance cannot possibly be defended here, one hint may encourage skeptics to suspend disbelief. The Southern intellectuals under discussion and the much larger number who shared their views controlled the educational system of the Old South from top to bottom. The power of the Presbyterian divines, for example, would be hard to exaggerate. And the South had proportionally more of its youth in college than the North did. Don Livingston has made that statement several times. And, oh, no, 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 you can't, you can't say. Genovese knew. I mean, Genovese is a very good historian. He knew. The slaveholders were a well-educated class by the standards of 19th century America and by those of much of Europe as well. Their religious, political, and social leaders were intellectually impressive and stood up well in comparison with their northern counterparts. Well, these people aren't a bunch of hayseeds, are they? They're not a bunch of country bumpkins who don't know anything illiterate, uneducated. This is the idea that you get about the South. You had these noble northerners who were all educated, well-versed in things, and they knew stuff, and then these southern hayseeds that didn't know anything. The problem of their relation to the yeomanry occasions heated debate among able historians who read the same evidence differently. That problem must be bypassed here, but surely no one could reasonably argue that the worldview of the slaveholders could be treated lightly without doing violence to the historical record, whether whatever judgment may be rendered on its extension by to other classes. Many American intellectual historians make a cavil at a book that takes the Southern intellectuals seriously, not merely as a political force, but as a people who match their northern counterparts in learning and creativity. Many American intellectual historians make cavil at a book, right, that takes these people seriously. that matched their northern counterparts. The Emersons, Adamses, and other New Englanders who demonstrably knew little about Southern intellectual life announced their, that Southerners had no minds, only temperaments. American intellectual historians have been peddling that bigoted nonsense ever since without, I very much fear, bothering to read the appropriate texts. 
And I think back to Elder in this interview. He kept talking about, well, I mean, we read John Quincy Adams, and he's so good. And all. then you read Calhoun, and it's hard to read Calhoun. He's so stern and cast iron. That's not what I get from reading Calhoun. But this is what you get. You get a bunch of people that read New England, and you read the opinions of New Englanders and say Southerners are just all. Fisher Ames. You read Fisher Ames. Now, look, Fisher Ames is hilarious. Okay. Fisher Ames, when he took aim at people, was just as good as John Randolph at Roanoke of tearing people down. It's hilarious. Okay, And he hated Southerners. But John Randolph could, could I mean, do the same thing. And I would have loved to have seen a debate if there, were ever, there, there wasn't one because the men didn't link up in Congress between Randolph and Ames. It would have been hilarious. Hilarious. The two could have gone at it, and it would have been absolutely must-see TV, if there was TV back then. Let us set aside the special problems of Northern preeminence in the writing of novels, although the Southern performance might look a great deal better if we would condescend to consider such women novelists, novelists as Augusta Jane Evans along with other men. On one subject after another, the intellectuals of the Old South matched and in some cases overmatched the best the North had to offer. What a powerful statement. Southerners matched or surpassed the best the North had to offer. Matched or surpassed them. And he's slashing at establishment historians here who fail to go out and read Southerners. Or they have some characterization of Southerners without context. They don't, they don't take these people seriously. St. George Tucker, Thomas Reed Roots Cobb, Thomas Ruffin in Legal Theory and Jurisprudence, George Tucker and Jacob N. Cardozo in Political Economy, James Henley Thornwell and Robert L. Dabney in Theology and Ecclesiology, Thomas Roderick Dew and William H. Trescott in Historical Studies, John C. Calhoun and Albert Taylor Bledsoe in Political Theory. The list could be extended, deserve to rank among America's ablest thinkers, who who now remembers that the luminaries of New England hailed Trescott's diplomacy of the revolution as America's first great contribution to diplomatic history? We can't say that. But most of these Southerners defended slavery, even uh, and even St. George Tucker and George Tucker, who did not, staunchly defended Southern rights and the political principles and policies of the slaveholders' regime. The slaveholders lost the war. Slavery has probably been condemned as an enormity. And not surprisingly, the Southern intellectuals have virtually been expunged from memory. So yeah, I mean, slave owners lost the war. It's been said it was abomination, rightfully so. But yet, why don't we still think about these people? Well, because they're slave owners. The loss is ours on two counts. First, the stubborn refusal of most American historians to take seriously the intellectual life of the Old South has gravely weakened our ability to assess the strength of the pro-slavery cause and account for its depth throughout the South. And even today, it gravely weakens our ability to assess the persistent political intellectual power of a Southern conservatism that participates in a Reaganite coalition dominated by the very kind of free marketeers it has always detested. For in truth, the pro-slavery argument was by no means merely the shabby rationale of an oppressed social order that it has usually been made out to be. To be sure, at its worst, it was just that. But at its formidable best, it was also the pillar of a worldview buttressed by close considerations of the great social, political, religious, economic, and philosophical issues of the day. 
In other words, this is something we have to take seriously because they had valuable things to say about what was going on in society, economy, politics, religion. These were valuable people who had really important things to say. Second, we could, if we would, profit greatly from a reasoned engagement with the thought of Calhoun, Dew, Bledsoe, Thornwell, and others as we grapple today with the staggering problems of a world in a headlong transition to the Lord knows what. (laughs) So it would be good to read these people because where the heck are we going? We're, We're in this headlong transition to what the heck is happening. He wrote this in 1992, and here we are 30 years later just about, and who knows what, it's even worse than what we were facing in 92. The finest aspects of their thought, shorn from the tragic commitment to slavery and racism, constitute a searing critique of some of the most dangerous tendencies in modern life. That subject, however, will have to be left for a more appropriate time and place. What a fantastic statement. So if we could just... Detach them from slavery and racism, which, I mean, this is, well, you can't do that. They were just a bunch of, but we do it with other people, right? We were able to do it with George Washington, for example, or Thomas Jefferson at times, or, but even he now, he's got problems. But we're able to do this. We, we know that most Americans were racist. We're able to do it with Emerson. We're able to do it with Harriet Beecher Stowe. We're able to do it with these people, right? But we can't do it with some, we can do it with others. This is where I said in the Chronicles piece, we're left debating who's the least racist among these people. I mean, this is counterproductive. We need to think about what these people actually said so that we can digest it and say, well, this is, this is good. I mean, this is what Weaver was talking about in the last essay where he read Calhoun and he thought, yes, okay, now I see. And you know, we can, we can work with this. There are things that we have to work with, with uh, here with Calhoun and libertarians slash conservatives and what we can offer to society. Here we confront one problem, the slaveholders' ambivalent attitude toward progress, which reveal much about their worldview and their view of themselves. Common sense dictates that a book on views of progress begin with a definition. Alas, as with many of the dictates of common sense, the demand is easier to make than to satisfy. Each definition of progress put forth in a large literature on the subject runs into substantial challenges, which a much larger book than this would be required to review. Still, no apology need need be made for a decision to stray clear of the philosophical quagmire. The issue here concerns the meaning attributed to progress by the slaveholders, and even the most sophisticated of them chose not to define it too closely. Southern intellectuals distinguish moral from material progress. As Christians, they, like their more religiously conservative northern counterparts, accepted the idea of moral progress only in a quantitative sense. That is, no qualitative advance in morals can be made over the teachings of Jesus Christ, but more and more people were being brought to an acceptance of those teachings, in no small part, to the revolutionary material progress in transportation and communications that was being affected by the Christian nations of the West. As for material progress, Southerners noted the astonishing transformation of modern times, the Industrial Revolution and all its works, and they pronounced itself generating irreversible and on the whole good. This is not something you often hear. Southerners at the time said, yeah, I mean, these are things that are going to happen. These are good changes. We're, we're bettering ourselves. That transformation of material life together with the spread of Christianity across the globe and the emergence of Republican institutions and individual freedom from unprecedented numbers of men combined to create a magnificent new epoch in human history. Southern intellectuals, like others, called it progress and embraced it as their own cause. Simultaneously, they found found in it much to hate and fear. 
history, ancient and medieval, as well as American fascinated, educated Southerners. They learned a good deal in school, although much of it's in courses in moral philosophy, the Greek and Roman classics, constitutional municipal law, and other subjects. The slaveholders' diaries, letters, and other personal papers show that the Bible and religious tracts held pride of place in their reading, with history, political tracts, and English literature, most notably Shakespeare, in competition for runner-up. In the academies and colleges, students got large doses of Greek and Roman history as well as literature, and many retained a lifelong interest, although few had learned the languages well enough to continue to read it in the original. No doubt, they had many reasons for their continued interest, including perhaps especially sheer pleasure. Among those reasons was the moral and historical support they found for their adherence to a slave society. The pro-slavery theorists never tired of proclaiming that the greatness of ancient Egypt, Israel, Greece, and Rome had been based on slavery, and the reading of ancient history and literature seemed to confirm the proclamation. So this is putting it all into a perspective, into an understanding of what's happening here. Southerners are reading these things. They're saying, well, the Greeks are slave owners. The Spartans were, and the Athenians were all slave owners. The great societies. The Romans were slave owners. The Egyptians were slave owners. The Israelites were slave owners. We're slave owners. So putting it in the perspective there helps you understand what these people were saying. Not to, not to promote or say this is good, but to understand. To understand their worldview in the 19th century. Educated Southerners did not assume an uncritical stance toward the ancient world. In particular, Southern educators, ministers, and legal scholars, scholars denounced early Roman patriarchalism for giving the male head of household despotic power over women, children, and slaves. So Southerners are saying the Roman model is bad because the men had despotic power over women, children, and slaves. According to the generally held interpretation, which, so far as I know, no Southern writer of note contradicted, legal reforms, and especially Christianity, rescued the ancient world from the evils of despotic patriarchalism and opened the way to a genuinely humane and civilized life. So Christianity saved Rome from itself, in contrast to, say, Edward Gibbon, who said it destroyed it. The impetus to the ancient world's progress in morals and social relations thus emerged as the slow development of a rule of law increasingly influenced by the spirit of Christianity. In the prevailing Southern view, as virtually every anti-abolitionist polemic makes clear, the South stood as the heir and guardian of that great Western tradition, and Christian slavery stood as the modern bastion against a relapse into barbarism. So Southerners were viewing themselves as a continuation of this tradition, the great Western tradition. The slaveholders displayed a, con- a conflicted attitude toward historical progress, which surfaced from time to time in their considerations of ancient history and burst forth in their considerations of medieval. This is very important. When I hear people like Elder in this interview saying that they believe that they were you know, medieval, pre-modern, Genovese says hogwash. They did not identify their society with that of the Middle Ages and certainly did not identify themselves as other than modern men who gloried in the material, artistic, and political advances of the 19th century. They understood the difference between uh, between. Uh, essentially, you know, feudalism and slavery, medieval lords and modern slaveholders, serfs and slaves, manors and plantations, feudalism and republicanism. They interpreted the Middle Ages in a manner complex, nuanced, and on the whole well-balanced. As Protestants, the slaveholders scored the Middle Ages for wallowing in superstition, idolatry, and corrupted religious values, in short, for wallowing in Roman Catholicism. Yet they proved surprisingly generous in the tribute they paid to the Catholic Church as a force of social stability. 
As proudly modern men, they had contempt for medieval economic stagnation and social backwardness. They reacted with disgust to despotism, violence, ignorance, and lack of amenities. They sharply denounced political interference in the economy as a primary fetter upon social progress. No important Southern intellectual, not even George Frederick Holmes, held up the Middle Ages as a model for the modern world or slipped into more than momentary nostalgia. So in other words, these people were not medieval men. They weren't feudalists. They were modern men who understood the medieval world was something different. Yet they recognized much of value in medieval society. They found the roots of modern republicanism in the evolution of feudal institutions and constitutionalism. They warmly praised the emergence of chivalry and the growth of Christian sentiment, however, however perverted by a Roman Catholic Church they viewed as increasingly corrupt. Most of they valued the organic social relations that were overthrown by triumph of the bourgeoisie and the cash nexus. A noticeable tension developed in Southern thought. On the one hand, the great majority of the educators, theorists, and public men accepted Manchesterian political economy and praised the emergence of economic freedom, which they identified as a sine qua non of the wonderful and ever-spiraling material progress in the modern world. On the other hand, drawing upon their study of political economy as well as history, they repeatedly condemned the severing of the Lord-Surf relation and the withdrawal of support and protection from the laboring masses. One after another, Southern educators and theorists charged that the bourgeoisie, driven by greed and a temperament worthy of infidels, had thrown the masses into an economic jungle and left them to an animal existence of privatization, brutal exploitation, outright starvation, and hopelessness. So in that critique of bourgeois capitalism, this is where someone like Genovese, who was trained a Marxist, can find, and this is where he started having appreciation for Southerners, because they were just as critical of capitalism, bourgeois capitalism, as a Marxist. They weren't Marxists, but they were critical of what it could do. In the end, the slaveholding intellectuals criticized the Middle Ages for backwardness and welcomed the progress that accompanied their passing. But they deeply regretted the price and especially destruction of the old social ties between rulers and ruled. Hence, while turning away from the Middle Ages and identifying themselves with modernity, they made two related claims for the South as a legitimate heir to the healthy and constructive elements of and medieval life. First, the South remained a Christian society, properly reformed in the Protestant sense, and stood as a bastion against the infidelity and heresies of the bourgeois perversion of modernity, which had badly flawed the Enlightenment and brought forth the horrors of the French Revolution, the terror, political radicalism, and growing social disorder. So, they don't like the transformation of the social order. That was one of the cr claims. They loved being in the modern age, but they did not like the destruction of the social order in society. There was a conservative social order there that needed to be maintained. Second, the South with its masters and slaves boasted organic social relationships adjusted to, the, to a dynamic and progressive modern world. The South, virtually alone, stood for progress and modernity without the terrible evils that plagued the bourgeois societies. This is what they argued. It was erecting not some refurbished medievalism with the social stagnation it implied, but a modern and progressive slave society that rested upon time-honored social and spiritual foundations. Thus, Southern theorists generally agreed that the progress of some required the progress of all, but they assumed that genuine progress would have to proceed within a stratified order that dispensed rewards unequally. Progress of all, but it had to remain in a strata. This is where Calhoun could stand up and say, well, you know, I think women eventually will be accepted. I mean, all these people that we are 
counting as subjects now, women, slaves, what it eventually would be accepted in society as, but it came unequal. The, the rewards were unequal at first, but eventually they would have to be <clears throat> as people progressed. Calhoun was a progressive. The contradictions in the slaveholders' interpretation of history and indeed in their self-image seem apparent now, but were rarely noticed then. Even the northerners, even their northern adversaries, who might have pummeled them badly on these matters, usually forfeited the chance by setting, settling for charges of hypocrisy and irrationality when they bothered to notice at all. The economic freedom that feudalism had stifled and that propelled the extraordinary progress of the modern age could hardly be separated historically or analytically from the extension of freedom to the laboring classes, to that emancipation of the serfs that Southerners harshly criticized. The Southern intellectuals knew that the extension of freedom and the demise of personal servitude held the secret of the progress and modernity they claimed to represent. They invoked the racial argument. Europeans constituted a superior race, fit for freedom for a, after a suitable period of Christian tutelage. But unable to sustain their larger argument on racial grounds, they repeatedly turned to the emancipation of the serfs as the primary cause of the social crisis that threatened to wreck the modern world and plague it, plunge it back towards barbarism. The slaveholders never came to terms with the ambiguity of their interpretation of the Middle Ages or with the ambivalence toward historical progress they exposed. They tried, but the ambiguity and ambivalence again rose again and again in their critique of the modern bourgeois societies and in their defense of slavery. They earnestly sought to champion a modernity purged of dis distortions and heresy and to present themselves as the carriers of a well-ordered progress in human affairs. In this respect, they shared much with, the, with transatlantic conservatives of many types. But in bravely meeting the challenge to assess the role of freedom in history, they struck out on a path of their own. At the end of that path, they encountered an unforeseen dilemma and a Hobson's choice between grim political alternatives. So this essay, again, was one that I thought, yeah, I mean, why don't we take these people seriously? Why don't we look at what they're saying and try to glean things out of it, things that we could use in modern society that are important and valuable, true and valuable? Why don't we do these things? Why don't we look for answers from these people, not just knee-jerk say, well, they're slave owners, they're a slaver, we can't listen to what they had to say. That's anti-intellectual. And I would say that nearly all the historical profession is anti-intellectual. They don't read Southerners. They don't, they don't read them at all. They don't take them seriously, particularly the, the Southern slave owners. They can't because that would destroy the very foundation of their worldview, that these people are just completely reactionary, hotheads, ridiculous, and we can't pay attention to anything they have to say because if we did, we might find that we actually might like some of them and some of the things they said, and that would make us, oh my gosh, uh, that would get that would open the door to make us or people calling us not make us but people calling us bad words, and we can't do that. Not that we are, but we can't do that. We can't even have the appearance. And and as Weaver pointed out, that's the whole point of the left to silence anything that might say this stuff. You've got to do it because it destroys the foundation of their power. All right, so I hope you enjoyed this episode, that little essay there by Genovese. I'll see you next time for the next episode. See you then.